mention the word sovereignty to someone and you might get a glazed look back. We all seem to know it as a word, but how many of us can say what it means to be sovereign and who is sovereign? It turns out that the answer is much more complex than that simple question might suggest. My guest today and I discuss what sovereignty is, who has it, where it comes from, and can you lose it? The Culinary Libertarian Podcast, episode 147. Welcome to the Culinary Libertarian Podcast, where the philosophy is free, but the food is on you. Dan Reed here, the Culinary Libertarian. Welcome back to the podcast. Happy to have you here. Happy to be here. It sounds counterintuitive that fat is heart healthy. I've done several episodes about that. Get fat and get healthy with beef tallow or pork fat or duck fat from Fat Works. Use my affiliate link, culinarylibertarian.com slash getfat to see the full selection. Get fat and get healthy. My guest today is Daniel McAdams. Daniel is the Executive Director of the Ron Paul Institute for Peace and Prosperity. He served as Foreign Affairs Advisor to Congressman Paul from 2001 to 2012 when Dr. Paul retired. From 1993 to 1999, Daniel worked as a journalist based in Budapest, Hungary, including a stint as editorial page editor for the Budapest Sun. Currently, Daniel is co-host Monday through Thursday on the Ron Paul Liberty Report and does write for the Ron Paul Institute for Peace and Prosperity. Hello, Daniel. Thank you for joining me today on the Culinary Libertarian Podcast. Hello, Dan, and thanks for inviting me to join you. It's my pleasure. Uh, I've got two-thirds of the Ron Paul Liberty Report now. I just have to get Dr. Paul. We'll see how that goes. That, that's a, I told Chris, that's a, I, I meant to compliment her. I said, well, that's a big fish. But uh, Before we get rolling here, just give us a little bit of your background and a little bit about who you are. Well, I started working for Dr. Paul in 2001. I just returned from seven years living overseas in Central Europe and uh, witnessing firsthand, firsthand, pardon me, the destruction of interventionist foreign policy. And so when I was there, I became aware of a member of Congress who seemed to really get it, uh, who really opposed the Yugoslav war. And I was, I was an election monitor. And so I was on the ground in Yugoslavia uh, many, many times in that period. So I saw up close and it really sort of, pardon me, it really sort of converted me from being this guy uh, in grad school who thought if only we could take foreign policy away from the liberals and get good conservatives in there, then by God, we'd really, you know, solve the problem. And it's not that I was a neocon, it was just this idea. And when I came uh, to understand Dr. Paul and the philosophy of non-interventionism, I thought this is exactly what I've been looking for because both the other sides are completely wrong. Uh, It's a stupid game. And so once that happened, it's off to the races. And I just got really super lucky that I was in the right place at the right time and had the opportunity to go to work for him. Right. Uh, I invited you on today to talk about sovereignty. Now, it's, it's an immensely complex topic, but I think it's something that is worth having a discussion. Um, and so I, I was uh, at a house party a couple of weeks ago, and this fellow asked this question, asked several questions, and we'll get to that in a few minutes. Um, but he he was trying to, well, he was asking me as a libertarian to talk about sovereignty, but also I think one of the errors people make in discussing sovereignty is they seem to not incorrectly come at it from the power, for lack of a better word, of of the country or the nation. Mm. And and most people 
like for example, even in the U.S., we talk about the the sovereign state of the Seminoles or the Chickasaw or the Cherokee. Some 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 nation, some Indian nation, is a sovereign state. But we, most people, I'm falling into the we trap. Most people, I think, overlook the concept of sovereignty for the individual, mm. and I, I and and that's. I don't know if it's a newer concept or just a more rare concept, but it's certainly one that I hadn't heard of until I started reading about libertarian thought and principles and philosophy. But it's an interesting idea to talk about. So first, can we just, with with those two possible definitions, can we define sovereignty two ways? Is there two ways to look at this? Yeah, I think there is. But, you know, I think one of the things that we're in right now, and it perhaps is part of the problem, is we're sort of in a post-ownership society. And if you think about sort of the global elites, people like uh, 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 like the World Economic Forum, Klaus Schwab, you'll own nothing and you'll like it. Uh, and I think at its core, uh, sovereignty is a concept of ownership. Uh, and it goes back to the sovereign, who is a king who owns the realm, uh, you know, and so... Uh, when you have a sense of ownership, it it, uh, it it devolves from the monarch to the individual in certain in certain realms, and we've sort of lost that sense now. The idea of owning things, certainly when you look at the United States in terms of property ownership, uh, and, and uh, et cetera, et cetera, we're sort of in a post ownership society, and that might be a source of some of the confusion I think about sovereignty. I th- I think that that might be right. Now, libertarians have there's a phrase that libertarians use which is a clunky and awkward phrase which is we own ourselves each person and and so when when you say that to somebody who either isn't prepared to hear it and think about the implications of the phrase most people either want to get into a fight about it and say oh only people you're talking about slavery oh Come on, you know there there is a disingenuous response, but it's a it's it's kind of a struggle as an idea to say that you own yourself. And I was talking to uh, well, talking to Mike Meharry about that, and I, I think I came <laughs> I messaged him. I said, you know, I think I have a solution as a phrase to fix the problem so people understand it. And it's with the New York swagger of, yo, you wait the boss of me. And that (laughs) seems to capture, I think, effectively, the notion that we're trying to convey that I own myself is you aren't the boss of me. And and it's, it's more fun to say, and people probably get it. From the individual sense, we can, we could, we're not going to, we could go all the way back to Thomas Hobbes, which... I, I recommend doing, but, you know, get your dictionary out and have a sit for a while uh, and read Leviathan and go back, look at the Treaty of Westphalia. And that's kind of a big deal. Now, I know that we really aren't going to get in too much into the really deep weeds of um, philosophy and theory, but it's hard to overlook the piece of Westphalia and and not mention that at all when we're talking about the the end of the Holy Roman Empire and the creation of a state. Is, is do you, how how does well? I guess the question is: Does it apply now to our thinking of sovereignty when probably most people don't even know it existed? Yeah, it's an important point, and it was the end of the Thirty Years' War, you know, and also the Eighty Years' War, which less people understand, and it was uh, the culmination in, of the of the sovereign state, the concept of a sovereign state, uh, which which sort of paved the way for for serious development in Europe, and also introduced the idea, the concept of non-intervention in the domestic affairs of affairs of other, which had more or less been respected. Uh, you know, perhaps you might say, you know, certainly until the 20th century, uh, but you could go back to maybe the end of World War II. Um, and I would say even even with some of the challenges to that concept that were that were presented by the United Nations, the advent of the United Nations. In fact, ironically, the United Nations, as it was set up, was a very was a bolster 
to the concept of national sovereignty because it recognized as members only sovereign states and it gave them sovereign rights as sovereign states imperfectly as it was. And it wasn't until, uh, you know, probably I would guess 2006 uh, when the UN adopted the concept of responsibility to protect the R2P, which explicitly went against the UN's charter and said, you can violate the sovereignty of a state if you think the leader of that state is treating his people badly, his or her people badly. And that was really, I think, probably the final nail in the coffin in terms of international order. And of course, it opened the door to uh, oceans and rivers of bloodshed afterward, uh, most of them based on lies, as your listeners know, in Libya and Syria and, and elsewhere. You, you mentioned non-intervention, and I think that that's an important point. And so the creation of the various states being in, 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 in America, we tend to think of states as sort of sub-corporations of the giant entity that is the country. But what really we're talking about is we're talking about nations. So France, the state of France, the state of Spain, or Germany, or, or Holland. or uh, So we're, we're talking about this, this defined space that calls itself this country. The recognition of, I guess, so if we have two states, there has to be a border, and that's a really hot issue for libertarians right now is borders. <laughs> um, but there, there comes with a, a border of some kind, however you create it, a respect for the border. And so now we can talk about the sovereignty of that place over there, over this imaginary line. But when we go from non-intervention to intervention, now we have a conflict. And, and that was seen even, you know, so conflict doesn't have to come to blows and bullets. It could be peacefully resolved. And I think we had a lot of that uh, in, in early colonial America with the 13 free and independent states. There was some, there was tension. I was like, wait a minute, this is, so it's not, I suppose it is the human condition that at some point you and I are going to have a disagreement about something. How we resolve that disagreement, I suppose, depends on just how great the, the, the problem is perceived. But do so so the sovereignty of the group of people called Germany and Holland and I realize they aren't necessarily next to each other but my geography isn't very good uh, what about the people in that established state do they have or do you think the idea so do you think in 1648 the idea that's that Johann had his own sense of independence and sovereignty as a person existed in in after in the state after the treaty, or is that idea a newer one? Well, I'm, I'm definitely not a cultural historian, so I can't okay. say with certainty. But my assumption would be that the uh, the organization of society was uh, was perhaps more precise at the time and. Someone like our the theoretical Johann would have people above him and people below him and would know his position in life, whether he was a landowner or a serf or what have you. Uh, so I think there's a certain order uh, that is difficult perhaps to understand in our system today, but I think there would have been. And I think when you talk about the violation of sovereignty, uh, even on, in uh, among nations, you get into the the area of your earlier colloquialism, which is we, we, we are the boss of that. You know, we will tell you what to do. And that's how we've gone off the rails from these independent 13 states uh, that became the United States. And, you know, one of the less remarked upon aspects of the Civil War, and you get into dangerous territory because you're only allowed to talk about it in terms of one horrible institution that, thank God, is gone. Uh, but if you start talking about it in terms of state sovereignty uh, and individual sovereignty and the ability for self-determination, uh, that was at the time a much bigger factor than what it became known as afterward. 
uh, you know, the, the, the effects of it, you know. Uh, I'm reading, since we, we brought, since I brought up uh, America, I'm looking for, I'm reading a book called Chaining Down Leviathan, and I have to look for the author, but it's, it's a fascinating and well-written read about in the specific period from, say, ratification to the Civil War and, and discusses some of these ideas of what is sovereignty and what happened with Lincolnian nationalism and, and why is it now nobody really understands these things. But he makes an interesting point that I didn't consider that at, b- before... There, there was a time somewhere on the planet that government didn't exist. That this, yeah, I guess in the king's land, there were, you know, <laughs> Hatfields and McCoys, and there were feuds, and there were rivalries, and, and they actually served a really valuable purpose to settle disputes that way. Now, we've I, I don't know how true the Hatfield-McCoy thing is, and there's, you know, cultural reference jokes about how that goes on for centuries. That might be true. I don't know the answer to that, but it's an interesting idea that resolution was obtained without government, probably without bullets, probably without murder, because that was, a, <laughs> to quote the Godfather, Blood's a big expense. I, th- I want to see if we can figure out, and this isn't, it's not critical to pinpoint it, but there was this shift that I think is really important. And then I want to see if we can talk about this guy's questions a little bit because uh, they seem interesting. And, and he, he's an interesting fellow. Uh, the last one we're going to avoid, which was how do libertarians feel about this? Uh, I, I, this is from a person who's not a libertarian, so it doesn't know that libertarians don't have a hive mind. <laughs> I don't know. It's it's the old joke. You get you know you could probably get ten libertarians in a room and get eleven opinions about anything. So, yeah. <laughs> um, do you have a sense of where in time the idea of the individual as you as is in charge of himself? Came is that a is that an American thing? Is that did did something happen in the French Revolution that created the same sort of idea of individual independence? Well, I mean, you could almost go back to the New Testament, right? Because ultimately, if you if 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 you look at it in that terms, you have sovereignty over your own soul. Nobody can affect the salvation of your soul uh, uh, more than you yourself, and so that's your ultimate sovereignty. Uh, if you want to go to back to that, and I mean that philosophically, not necessarily in terms of a particular religion. Right. Uh, and so I would I would guess there's also there's also that aspect in the Old Testament as well. So you do go back to sort of a theocratic origin, which we'll talk about, uh, you know, sort of a natural rights, uh, things that have always existed in time uh, uh, sort of thing. And so if you go back to that, your ultimate sovereignty is a sovereignty over uh, your salvation or, or damnation. All right, so natural rights is a good point, and I, I, so now that that seems to sort of firmly place it in 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 the founding documents, and uh, I know the Declaration isn't really considered a founding document, but it was, it was an important moment in in thinking and recognizing we are not now answering to you. And I think one of the things that comes out of recognizing and, I guess, demanding natural rights is the idea of self-determination. And I think that can lead us into volunteerism, which might be right into contemporary times, because I I think uh, the the voluntary, I'm going to say this wrong, voluntarists (laughs) are, are, I think, a, a fairly modern idea of a voluntary society. Maybe that's from, I don't know, maybe from the 60s. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, it also has to do with the use of force. I mean, if you go back to colonial times, the majority of the colonists were opposed to independence. So you have, you have a big problem here. How do you, how do you bring this about? 
uh, when you have the majority of the population against the idea. Uh, so, you know, so if it were purely voluntarism, you know, uh, you, you look at the you look at how 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 the the colonies when they escaped the hold of the realm uh, were they relatively more free uh, than before, and I think the answer at that point would have to be yes because they had their their government was more localized, they had more subsidiarity, uh, you know, they were ruled uh, self ruled essentially, so. Uh, even with, uh, you know, even even with a lack of, of democratic mandate uh, for independence, they did create create and craft a society that was more free, and which, of course, uh, tells us all we need to know necessarily about democracy. I mentioned uh, a fellow and his his party, and uh, so when when I first met him, we were at his house in a different party. Um, I'm not entirely sure I know why he volunteered this, but he volunteered that he is uh, the biggest Marxist I would ever meet. <laughs> and then they in terms of he size had... or philosophy? <laughs> What's that? I said in terms of size or philosophy? In terms of philosophy. <laughs> um, so he is he's a PhD anthropologist and works in the oh, university God. system. And so that sort of is almost a joke, but it's true. Um so the third question I told you was how do libertarians think about this? And that is not something that isn't worth answering because go ask any of them and get a different answer. But the one question he asked I thought was interesting, and maybe it isn't, does – so I, I – well, let me preface the introduction of the question with I think he was coming at the idea of sovereignty – not from the individual state uh, position, but from the state, the nation state. So does sovereignty exist on its own or does it require recognition of another for then for it to be the case? And I'm not entirely sure I understand all of what he's trying to ask, but it almost sounds like it doesn't exist unless you breathe it into existence can that then go away? But that's a, that's a corollary he didn't ask. Does any of that make sense? Do you understand what he's asking? You know, I, I don't. I mean, it seems like talk about getting into the weeds. I don't know exactly uh, the, the point that he's making. You know, I, I mean, uh, you know, philosophical Marxism is a is a, is a, is is really like a a mouthful of uh, of gummy worms. It's it's hard to uh, manage. It's <laughs> <laughs> a vivid image. <laughs> All right. Well, then let me see if I can nail this down because he had a couple and just and we'll see how it goes. And that's all right. What? So this is in. So his, his focus seemed to be on the peace of Westphalia. And he wanted to. And so it's, uh, the other question was, what gives the state power over the citizens? Now, we would say, I think we would say that the state obtains its power from the consent of the governed, which is the sort of bad textbook answer, because what about the people who don't want to be governed? Or we're back to the people who say, yo, you ain't the boss of me. Yeah. So, is, now, now it becomes interesting, and maybe we want to avoid too much of this weeds stuff, but for the ungoverned, I think the state doesn't have a legitimate authority over you. So yeah, and I think yeah, I mean, I think that's that's why. I mean, I'm I'm definitely I'm not a philosophical libertarian. I'm a practical libertarian. I came to the philosophy um, because it worked with the worldview of, as you say, you ain't the boss of me. Um, but you know, in in sort of in, in previous eras, uh, it, you know, the the peace was kept. You had a monarch. You had a sovereign. Who was sovereign over his land and had ownership, but you had the constant threat of regicide, and that kept the king honest. He knew if you overstepped his bounds, uh, that there would be hell to pay, probably literally. Right. You know, and we've and we've lost that. So the, the more you tread on people, and all you have to do is look at any day in Washington or even in most state capitals, the more you tread on people in every aspect of their life, the further ahead you get. You know, personally, in terms of fame. Uh, in terms of fortune, so we've we've come full circle from the concept that if you screw with me, there's a good chance I'm gonna get together some 
some Vikings and come kill you, you know? <laughs> well, you know, it's your almost Shakespearean explanation of what's going to happen when the, when the king gets too powerful. You know, as, as of this recording, just yesterday, President of the United States kind of threatened the American citizens with F-15s and nuclear war. Yes. <laughs> yeah, might yeah, you know, so and then so that's that's it's a whole other can of worms and people much better at figuring that out are gonna do that because I'm not the one to figure that out, but certainly it's it's <laughs> not probably the first best place you want to be. <laughs> well, it was fascinating because first of all, it was nice to see the iron fist uh revealed behind the velvet gloves. Uh, you know, it's a nice little look at reality, a look at how the state views the citizens, and it should be a wake-up call. Uh, but it also, as is usual from the U.S. government, is a fair bit of bravado, because as many commenters said after that, oh, yeah, well, you've got all those things, and you fought for 20 years in Afghanistan with people in sandals, and you still lost. So, <clears throat> so there's a lot of swagger. There's a lot of bravado. There's not a lot of, there's not a great track record of military uh, success on the part of the U.S., but the the idea, the idea that the nuclear arsenal, which we built up, you know, for you know since the beginning of the Cold War, since you know forty forty five, uh, and, and actually it's now okay, this is something that can be used against you, and I think it's a wake up call because we're also seeing simultaneously uh, a new declaration of war on domestic terror, and that war is identical and parallel to the war on foreign terror declared after 9-11. And a lot of people, in, in my, my, my boss, Dr. Paul, especially, at the time said, all of this power you give the state to fight the bad guys overseas, uh, the boogeyman overseas, they will be turned inward. You're giving up your liberty. You're giving up your sovereignty, your, your personal sovereignty, to a state that will not give it back. And we're seeing the culmination of that right now. And when you look at this, and actually just put up, I don't know if you're familiar with Whitney Webb, uh, but she's she's one of she's a very terrific writer. She's very good. And we just put a piece up on the Ron Paul Institute website today, uh, talking about the criteria now that are met to be considered a domestic terrorist. And some of them are hitting a little close to home. Uh, opposition to an increasing government power over individuals, et cetera, et cetera. I, I would encourage people to have a read of the article. But that's what you're seeing, and that's what is chilling uh, you're seeing these two sort of things combine right now. I th suspect most people think that it couldn't possibly happen. It couldn't possibly get that far. Um, and I would certainly hope that they're right about that. But part, you know, once you become a student of at least the American government, and that's more than enough to study, it becomes pretty clear that they don't seem to have a whole lot of shame or uh, recalcitrance to venture onto the side of, well, evil. Yes, and we are seeing it today, though, because and we've we've talked a lot about this on on our program. Julie Kelly, who writes for American Greatness, has done a great job in looking into the political persecution of the so-called insurrectionists. Right, <laughs> people, many of whom just just kind of wandered into the Capitol. Hey, this is pretty cool. Let's look around. Then they found the FBI knocking on their door and they were put away uh, and they threw away the lock and key. I mean, they were held in, in, uh, in solitary confinement, in, in, uh, in, in protective custody uh, with no charges uh, filed against them. I mean, we're talking 520 some people, uh, none of them with uh, a, a, a very few of them, let's put it that way, accused of any uh, remotely uh, violent crime. Uh, very few of them with any criminal records whatsoever, and they're just being hauled up. And in fact, uh, I'm just looking at a piece right here now. Family members of the people who were there are being arrested. So we are seeing the implementation of a political war uh, on some Americans. And a lot of people would say, hey, you know, I'm, I, I, I hate Trump. And, well, I'm certainly not. I was not a Trump supporter, uh, but I sure as hell don't like what's happening to people who were. And who just sort of wandered into the capital and find themselves facing long prison terms. Didn't we just read last week that it was the FBI that did this quote unquote insurrection? 
Well, that's certainly, I mean, that, that came out in Tucker Carlson's show. And I mean, it, it, the idea that it's a surprise should be a surprise to people because we know throughout history, I mean, all, and Glenn Greenwald was great on this because he was great in the, in the 2000s chronicling most of these so-called terror plots that were foiled in the U.S. or actually cooked up by the FBI itself. They'd find some hapless loser. Uh, you know, I think in one case it was a group of African-Americans uh, with, with literally no shoes on their feet. And they said, hey, you know, don't you want to stick it to the man? Here's a great idea. Here, we're going to buy some shoes. Don't you want to blow stuff up here? You know, we're going to deliver the, uh, whatever. Okay, I love those shoes. Boom, we stopped it. We stopped a terror attack. And this is this has been the case over and over and over again, all the way recently to Gretchen Whitmer, the idea that there was a, a group coming to kidnap the governor of Michigan. It turns out that I think three of the five people in the car to do the surveillance uh, of her were FBI agents or informants. So this is a long pattern uh, that has been repeated over and over again. Uh, and certainly, you know, I think the evidence suggests, and in fact, looking at previous activity, if these groups had not been infiltrated, the Proud Boys, and well, we know that they were because the, the, the head of the Proud Boys turns out to be a longtime FBI informant himself, but the other groups as well had been infiltrated uh, for the longest time. And the, but the question is, were they infiltrated? At what point was the infiltration to gather intelligence, which is potentially a, law, a legitimate law enforcement function? And how much of it was it? How much of it was to guide events to a certain uh, direction? And that's the real issue, I think. Well, I, I hope I don't know how you'd ever get an answer to that question. I don't know who would find the. I don't, <laughs> can you trust the government to sure. provide the answer to the question about themselves? I, you know, it's like the old joke. You know, we have investigated ourselves and found we have done nothing wrong. What a surprise. Um, so I just was wondering, partly to get back to the sovereignty issue, and I think that there's a sovereignty discussion for someone else to have about a president. I, I'm not saying, I'm not sure I accept completely that he was actually threatening Americans, but it didn't sound good anyway. Um, but if you take away the force and the cages in the government, is it still sovereign? I think they're using that as, as their, it's almost sovereignty by threat. Yeah, yeah. I think that is the case. I think there. I think you see. You, you do see a lot of it, um, but it's 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 sovereignty with a heavy dose of politicization. You know the the odd thing, and once again, as a non <laughs> as a non voter, uh, you know the if if uh, if if Trump had attempted a, 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 a tiny fraction of this kind of war against political opponents. Yeah, he was blustering and he was full of crap, right? But he had actually implementized uh, some, of, some of this and arrested hundreds of, of, uh, of Biden or Obama supporters or what have you. I would think that there would have been more of a stink made about it, and we're not seeing it right now. Uh, so uh, it's, yes. So the, the short answer is yes, I think it is sovereignty by force, but I think it is heavily politicized. Let's take a moment out for a word from Jake about his Tasting Anarchy podcast. Hey everyone, Jake here, host of the Tasting Anarchy podcast. Join my co-host Mason and I each week as we explore the world of wine and alcohol through a liberty lens. You can find us on all your major podcatchers, tastinganarchy.com or Tasting Anarchy on Twitter. Tasting Anarchy, your wine and liberty podcast. Find out how much government is in your drink. I want to move in a little bit to, well, not a little bit, a whole lot. I want to move into a different part of the show, and I have a series of uh, short answer questions that have nothing to do with sovereignty, nothing to do with politics. It's in just kind of a fun little part because this is the culinary part of the Culinary Libertarian Show. All right. Uh, of the five flavors, sweet, salty, bitter, sour, or umami, which one do you enjoy the most? Umami. What's your favorite food? Oh my gosh, I cook all the time. I cook almost every night for the, for myself and the family. Um, uh, so I have a wide range of things, but you know, I I I love. I mean, I 
I love cooking Japanese food. Um, uh, I would say uh, I love to I love to grill. Uh, I love uh, the constant learning that's required in properly smoking food. Uh, so yeah, I mean, uh, I could not say one particular thing. There's just too much. All right. Well, this one might be easier. What is your least favorite food? Well, it's not much easier because there's not much I won't eat. <laughs> I mean, I, I went on a congressional trip to China uh, back when I was working on the Hill and every part, everyone else in the delegation couldn't believe the stuff that was being served. And I was just gobbling it up. Sea cucumbers, bring them on. Bring me more. So uh, so there's not much that I that I literally will not eat. Uh, you know, I mean, of course, there are things that are just gross to be gross. And that's, you know. I mean, God love him. Andrew Zimmern was was a was a great guy, but some of that stuff was a little bit much, just for the sake of being much. <laughs> what gets you excited? What in in terms in culinary terms? Uh, however you choose to answer, food or elsewise. Oh well, what gets me excited is when I successfully give the middle finger to a bad guy. You know, if I, if I, and I don't write as much these days because of doing the show daily is, is very taxing. But when I was doing a lot more writing, when I knew that I had a zinger and I did, aha, I got you and put it out there. That's exciting because it gives you uh, probably a futile sense of a bit of power. <laughs> but in terms, in, in culinary terms, it's, it's adapting recipes, getting to the point in, and I've gotten this over the past few years uh, where you, 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 you you have a sense of what it should be like and you don't need to read about it because you have a sense of what you need to put in. And so you don't deal with the mounts really whatsoever. So that's, that's exciting. I think. I definitely would agree with that. What turned you off? Oh, the, the, <laughs> the unwarranted artificially high self-esteem of the entire District of Columbia, people who have achieved nothing in their lives, who were so incredibly arrogant uh, and and condescending to the rest of the country that works its butt off uh, to pay for them to live a lifestyle that you don't get down here in Lake Jackson. You know, we don't have five star uh, steakhouses on every corner like they have up there. So that that is the unwarranted arrogance of the political elites. What sound? Do you love the piano? What sound do you hate? <laughs> My God, this is I see. I shouldn't be having iced coffee. I should have had some vodka or something. <laughs> What's <laughs> you? Why not both? <laughs> That's true. What sound do I hate is the, the morning alarm bell on Sunday. Uh-huh. <laughs> All right. Almost as hard as the first two. What is your favorite food indulgence? Oh, oh, that would be um, that would be fried yuca because it's 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 hell on wheels in terms of carbs and starch. Uh, but when you when you when you have a, a delicious mojo sauce, mojo diajo sauce, and you dip some fried yuca in it. It's, uh, it's, you feel like you're in South America or Central America. Well, if you're going to go carbs, baby, go big. Go big. <laughs> all right. So we, we've covered, and we maybe we can come back a little bit just to round it all up. But this, this is a really big idea. And for anybody who is curious to learn some more, is there a book you can think of? maybe not even specifically about sovereignty, but something that would help people get onto a path of understanding, yo, you ain't the boss of me. <laughs> well, I mean, frankly, and, and, I, and I have to say I have not mastered the book, but I've read good portions of it. But I think Hans Hermann Hoppe's Democracy, the God that Failed, uh, puts it together in a way that, uh, that, that is, 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 is much more precise in, you know, in my terms, uh, the ultimate, the ultimate society is an anarcho-capitalist society. Uh, the, 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 the less bad of that would be a monarchy where you have ownership and the worst of all is, is a democracy, which is what we're stuck with, what we're stuck with now. So if you want to get heavy into philosophy, 
that's that's definitely where I would go. Are you? I'm just curious. I'm just. In, are you more of an anarchist, or are you, whatever that means, a full-on libertarian? I don't consider myself a libertarian. I don't consider myself an anarchist. I really don't consider myself anything. Uh, it, basically, my philosophy is, as you very well pointed out at the very beginning, uh, you ain't the boss of me unless I voluntarily allow you to be the boss of me in certain aspects. You know, obviously, if you're married, uh, there are certain that you you take on subservient roles in certain aspects. If you are a religious person, you voluntarily uh, choose to submit yourself to a higher power, uh, and that's fine. But it goes back to voluntarism. And uh, the idea that you're not the boss of me unless I say you are. And if you are physically, then you go to a place like Thomas Mann writes about and others where you have a sovereignty. That last little bit of sovereignty is a little tiny kernel in the back of your brain where you're still free. And I think that's what a lot of dissidents in Eastern Europe, certainly uh, dissidents in, in uh, Nazi Germany, they kept that kernel in their mind alive of their personal sovereignty, and it probably kept a lot of them from going mad. I th they never, in, in that, um, gosh, it's probably, I don't know, it's probably been 15 or 20 years now, maybe there was a little Italian fellow, uh, the, the Nazi film, was it called Life is Good? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And... They never came out and said so, but I think that that's the kind of thing you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. Is some now? I, I mean, that's kind of a really, it's a really, really big idea. But, but keeping a sense of even a, a sense of joy that can't be extinguished, or whatever the thing is, and everyone would be different. Everyone would have their own thing. Maybe you can. Maybe you're listening to some some great piece of opera in your head that no one can take away from you but that's that's I, I like the idea that there there's a place and this is not a, a unique idea someone else has said it that there's i think it's actually even in Shawshank redemption there there's a place in you that they can't get yeah and for for uh Dufresne, that was hope yes yes exactly and that's where we are. I mean, we see the, we see the, we see the the, the arms of the state uh, uh, getting closer. We hear the footsteps closer behind us, uh, and I think it's going to get to the point where we have to nurture that part uh, in our brain, in our heart, or wherever you want to call it, uh, where we can continue to hold out hope. Uh, well, we can continue to act as long as we're we're able to do so. No, I was surfing my Twitter today and saw Jeff Dice had posted a kind of very short tweet that uh, nationalized police are coming. Now, whether or not that it comes to be doesn't mean Jeff is wrong, but I think Jeff's probably right, at least in, in terms of the want of the overlords. You, you and Dr. Paul and Chris every day, five days a week, put out some content for at least the people who watch to to give them some of that hope, some of that, some information about how to act, what to do, how to counter it. But, you know, when, when the president says you need an F-15 and an A-bomb, <laughs> you talked about the arrogance of Capitol Hill. I think that, I mean, boy, talk about the perfect summation of the bravado of, of the elected quote-unquote leaders that we're untouchable, but you know we we know that that's not true. But I I, I guess my wonderment, the concern might be too strong. Is how many people, how many times does now who can answer this? How many times does something like that have to happen before the fence sitters say, you know, this is this is starting to appear to be really an issue, and we need to do something. And I think. Now, this is a great question. I don't have any way to answer it. At some point, the apathy of the American citizenry became so great that whatever happened was, well, that's just it. What are you going to do? And now 
here we are with this place where we're talking about, we're, we're, we're sort of mocking, but not really, a really bad situation possibly coming up. And I think there are some people who think that this could never be the case. I guess the question is, how do you, I mean, for the people listening who know someone like that, how do you, how do you reach those people? How do you enlighten them to, yeah, no one can, no one has a crystal ball. No one's saying this is de facto going to happen, but boy, look at what's going on and how do you, how do you actuate the fence post sitters? I think there are two pieces of good news in that. And the first is, as Dr. Paul has always said, you don't need anything remotely approaching a majority of the people. Uh, and of course, before him, Lenin understood that very well. Uh, in fact, you don't want a majority. Uh, you want an absolutely dedicated minority. In our case, it would be dedicated to freedom. So A, it doesn't take that many people, uh, relatively speaking, of course, it takes a critical mass. And B, the regime itself is extraordinarily fragile. It's easy to fracture. And we see this around the edges. We saw just the other day, the U.S. went and seized 30-some news websites overseas, including Press TV in Iran. It just seized them. We're taking your website. Uh, and it's not because uh, of anything other than the fact, whatever you think about the Iranian regime, they did provide challenges to U.S. foreign policy, critiques to U.S. foreign policy. So the regime is fragile it cannot withstand criticism. We already saw this at the end of the Soviet Union when it was, uh, you know, hate to break the news to conservatives, but it wasn't Reagan's defense budget that broke the USSR apart. It was the, it was the internal weakness of the regime. It was the, its inability to adapt uh, and to continue to grow. And that's what we're seeing in this regime, in the US regime. So I think collapse is inevitable I think for us, the question is, how do we take advantage of that collapse to push forward our ideas about trying something new? Let's not lead the world with bombs and guns. Let's not push people around uh, at home and overseas. How do we stand up to that challenge? And that's a big question that I don't know the answer to exactly. You know, it's it's interesting you brought that up. It's it's almost like there's a digital sovereignty being violated by going into another country and taking something that's not ours. Yes, yes, and even a physical one, like stealing the oil from the, from the poor Syrians. Yeah. <laughs> you know, your your last couple of words, I, I immediately thought of. So the you know, don't do harm, be nice, and I, I'm thinking back to Life magazine put out in oh, maybe late 70s, early 80s, a compilation of some of, I don't know, determined by who, some of their best photos. Uh -huh. And Life Magazine certainly has some spectacular photography over the years. Yeah. And there was a point in time in the 60s where there was a fellow putting daisies into the barrels of rifles. Oh, yeah. And, and anyone who's seen it will remember. It's a very powerful image. And I'm just thinking back, it seems like we could really benefit. From, well, I'm not sure. It, in, it, philosophically, from a revival of the flower power. Yeah. There's, you know, we, we mock it a lot. And I was just a kid back then. I remember, I remember the hippies coming over to my parents' house to have parties and, you know we didn't find do and stuff but um there there you know on reflection there was a now we always say it was simpler back then it's hard to imagine 40 years from now people will wax reminiscent and finally about 2020 but there there was a simplicity to then and there i don't know i mean maybe i'm just maybe i'm just getting old and i'm <laughs> doing the exact thing i'm talking about and I'm waxing philosophical about when it was, when it seemed better. I don't know. But I, I'm glad that you found a way, just like on your own show, to find the good. <laughs> I didn't even think about that. And I'm glad you came up with that. That was, that was a good move. So well done. Well, thank you. At least back then, you know, we had the left with us in the anti-war camp. You know, now they've gone to the pro-war camp. Uh, and it's, uh, you know, I love the CIA, <laughs> that sort of thing. So. It's, uh, it's going to be more of a challenge for us, I think.
Well, yeah, that part's definitely true. So, uh, how can people follow you? Uh, well, we're on YouTube at least as of <laughs> three seconds ago. <laughs> yeah. At the Ron Paul Liberty Report, our website is ronpaulinstitute.org. Uh, we're finally able to do some conferences again. We usually have a yearly conference in Washington, D.C., which we are having this year on September 4th, Labor Day weekend, uh, the theme of which is the war on us. So we're talking about a lot of things that you and I have talked about today, the attacks on our civil liberties. So so that's what we do. And, uh, you know, we'd love to have people watch the show, subscribe to our channel and follow what we do. Well, it's it's a good show and it's it's the kind of thing that it's, you, you need to get several weeks in and then the, there's like all the stuff because you have so much content, but you can't do all of it. You'd never be off the air. Yeah, it feels like it. Yeah. Yeah. But it's, it's a good, it's a good show. It's worth, uh, it's, it's worth subscribing. So you out there who aren't subscribed to the Liberty Report, um, tell me again, the name of the person. I just went to the Ron Paul Liberty Report site and I can't find the article you said you just posted. Oh, okay. Let me see. It is our lead article today. Who is a terrorist in Biden's America? It's up on the top left. You'll see the Capitol with all kinds of razor wire around. Yeah, I'm on my phone, so it's not coming up that way. Oh, okay. Is it Liberty Report or is it? No, it's ronpaulinstitute.org. Ah, well, see, that explains why I can't find it. Okay, uh, I want to link to that. Uh, I'm going to go find it. I'm going to link to that on the show notes page, which today is going to be culinarylibertarian.com slash 147. And I thank you for your time today. Well, thanks. It's been great talking to you. Really enjoyed it. Well, I'm glad you enjoyed it. That's part of the deal. So that then works out for both of us. All right. Take care. So and enjoy the rest of your ice. Is there anything left of your iced coffee? Uh, there is just one last drag. <laughs> well, go, go fill that up with the vodka and then have a good rest of the <laughs> okay. afternoon. All righty. Uh, and thanks again for your great time. Great talking to you. Take care. Hope we keep in touch. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. All right, folks, that's going to do it. I'll put a link to the Ron Paul Liberty Report YouTube channel on the show notes page, as well as a link to the article Daniel mentioned. I'll also add a link to Chaining Down Leviathan, which was written by Marco Bassani, the name I couldn't quite get out during the interview. Please share this episode around on your social media feeds and like the post when you do that. Also, please rate and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. If you like what I'm doing, I would appreciate your support. Exchange your fiat for a coffee mug or make a donation in fiat currency through the links at culinarylibertarian.com support. Have a good week, and I'll see you soon. Music for the Culinary Libertarian podcast is provided by Matthew Bankert at mattbankert.com.